Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to What Climate Change Loss and Damage Means for the U.S. and the World, an event hosted by the Phelan U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. My name is Rebecca Elliott, and I am an assistant professor of sociology at the LSE. This event is being held to coincide with COP26, the Global Environmental Summit, where world leaders and their negotiators are attempting to agree to terms that will keep the planet from reaching major climatic collapse with the goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. But even if they are successful, a 1.5 degree warmer world is already a world facing substantial and unequally felt disruption. Indeed, the climate crisis has already raised sea levels, intensified floods, supercharged storms and wildfires, and made droughts and heat waves far worse in the United States and beyond. As a result, we have already realized an array of losses and damages due to climate change. As U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate John F. Kerry said at the LSE when he addressed us here last week, some of these impacts are already irreversible. Without dramatic action, they become unlivable. These encompass damages to infrastructure and homes, biodiversity loss, negative impacts on human health and deaths attributable to air pollution and extreme heat and cold, as well as disconnection from histories and cultural resources, among other observed and projected harms. Some of the losses and damages we've seen already have happened quickly and dramatically, and others are taking shape more slowly over time. But they have been distributed unevenly and unequally, in many instances meaning that those who have historically contributed the least to global greenhouse gas emissions have already suffered tremendous harm while continuing to face the most urgent existential threats. So the big question we'll be exploring tonight and another key question at the COP is how should national and global leaders address the effects of human-induced climate change that can neither be avoided nor adapted to? And we have an illustrious panel with us tonight to inform our conversation, and I'll introduce each of them in a moment. But a byproduct of this event being scheduled to coincide with COP26 is that one of our panelists, Professor Salimul Haq, has been called away to join the Bangladesh Prime Minister delegation and cannot join the conversation tonight. Professor White will also have to leave us early due to other commitments to the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Of course, we thank them both for the important work that they're doing in these capacities, even as we regret missing the opportunity to chat at greater length with them tonight. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Uh, Professor Kyle White, who I just told you a little bit about, is George Willis Pack Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. His research addresses environmental justice, focusing on climate policy and indigenous peoples, the ethics of cooperative relationships between indigenous peoples and science organizations, and problems of indigenous justice in public and academic discussions. He's an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, and as I mentioned, serves on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Uh, Professor Adamola Oluborode Jegede is a professor of law at the University of Venda in South Africa. His research principally focuses on the interface of climate change and biodiversity loss with human rights of vulnerable populations. And Professor Emily Boyd is Professor in Sustainability Science and Director of Lund University Center for Sustainability Studies. She's a leading social scientist with a specialist focus 
on the interdisciplinary nexus of poverty, governance, and resilience in relation to global environmental change. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE climate risks. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. And as usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to our panelists. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to me and I will pose as many as possible to the speakers in the time that we have. Please let us know your name and where you're from. Um, we're particularly keen to hear from our students, from our alumni and incoming students, so please let us know. So to begin, I've asked our panelists to provide some prefacing remarks to set the stage for our conversation tonight. And these revolve around kind of three big questions. The first is that I've asked each of them to tell us a bit more about their personal and research engagements with issues of loss and damage in their roles as scholars, activists, advisors, or, or really any other role. Um, to tell us a little bit more about how they came to see this topic as an important one in their work related to climate change. The second question to each of them is what, in their view, are the key issues or challenges that should be on the table in discussions of loss and damage? And then finally, that big question for tonight, how should national and global leaders address the effects of human-induced climate change that can be neither avoided nor adapted to? And if we may, I'd like to turn first to Professor White. I appreciate it, Professor Elliott, and good to connect with you and your colleagues and with the panelists uh, here. So I originally got into loss and damage work just as an Indigenous person that was extremely concerned about climate change. Uh, my own community, uh, the citizen Potawatomi Nation, which is Anishinaabe people, uh, we actually suffered forced relocation uh, over 150 years ago and have since seen the dispossession of our land as well as threats from the oil industry. And so we've been enduring environmental injustices for many generations, and that affected our culture, uh, our economy, our family life, our kinship structures. And so by the time I moved to our original homelands in, in Michigan, uh, in the Great Lakes region, I was really excited about the chance to interact with many of the traditional plants and animals and ecosystems that come from our history and our origins. But at the time, we were finding out that actually it was becoming a lot harder to practice those economic and cultural and social and kinship and family traditions because of the rise in temperature uh, in the Great Lakes region and the effects on precipitation, the effects on heat, the effects on water quality and water levels. And so this led me to try to take action uh, to be able to empower Native people in the Great Lakes, but also uh, in North America and globally to take action to prepare for climate change. Uh, and so I've worked with a number of tribes on their climate change planning processes. I've developed educational programs for uh, tribal college, university students uh, on climate change and how to take leadership in climate change. I've trained uh, hundreds of climate scientists on how to collaborate with tribes and indigenous people. And I've worked in a number of other policy and governmental functions uh, tied to uh, doing things in ways that will make it uh, uh, easier and more resourced for uh, tribes to be able to take action to address climate change. 
But Native people, I mean, I'm just one example, were some of the most adamant architects of the climate justice movement. I've been an author on the National Climate Assessment, and we collaborated with the Bureau of Indian Affairs to create a a model that was tracking all the different climate change actions that indigenous people were taking. Uh, and just within the US context, where there's several million uh, indigenous persons, there's well over a thousand actions that indigenous people are taking to address climate change. Uh, and in proportion to the rest of the US population, that's uh, pretty intense actually. And that doesn't even count a lot of the resistance efforts to the fossil fuel sector. So it's also excluding uh, a key area that many of us would describe as climate action. And so we've been addressing issues tied to loss and damage, but I think a lot of people don't understand what loss and damage really mean to us as indigenous people. And this has a lot to do with what national governments need to do to support uh, indigenous efforts to take action to mitigate and adapt to climate change. Remember from our perspective, uh, it's not that there's a universal understanding of loss and damage, and then it gets applied to our particular situations. Uh, there's over 574 uh, native communities, tribal nations within the US context. And each of us has a very particular story with climate change. But for many of us, the story goes something like this. Uh, our communities, our peoples have been engaged in climate science for generations. Our oldest traditions of political philosophy, of policy, of social organization, were always tied to the importance of understanding how to be adaptive to the seasons. And so we exercised flexible governance mechanisms that were regional and continental in scope. Uh, and we took very seriously the importance of tracking seasonal change and as well as tracking long-term change. So something like climate change. But in the context that I work in, you know, it's really the US settlement process that rapidly dispossesses us of our land. And they do that to make way for the industries that we know are now responsible for the increase of concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And so we suffered pollution, the breakup of our families and kinship structures to make way for the very industries that we know have this heavy responsibility. And so we experienced then the anthropogenic climate change impacts of land dispossession because that's a form of forced climate change or forced environmental change. It changes land cover and soil. It changes the location you live, right? My tribe moved over a thousand miles, a uh, completely different set of ecosystems and, 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 and habitats. And so we went through repeated environmental degradation, land dispossession, and then we were forced into boarding and residential schools that sought to strip us of that climate science knowledge that I was describing earlier. And so I was recently part of an author team that published a paper that you can find in science that actually shows that it's also land dispossession um, that has put us in a more vulnerable position with the current climate change impacts. And so when we think of loss and damage, it's not just that we have discrete cultural practices and discrete economic practices, it's that we're in a 200 or more year process of trying to recover from having most of our lands stolen from us, having our governance, our self-governance and management systems disrespected and not having a huge role in regional and national planning processes. And so you can't uncouple loss and damage from our efforts to recover our self-determination and self-governance 
And so for national governance, governments, they need to expand the way in which free prior and informed consent works. They need to reevaluate and improve their nation to nation consultation policies, especially in nations that have yet to respect indigenous people's sovereignty and nationhood. They need to recognize that any wealth that any nation has uh, is based on the fact that they took the wealth that we had, whether it was wealth we valued in the same way or wealth we valued in different ways, the forests, the the waterways, uh, the landscapes, all of that has exponentially benefited (laughs) the, the, the wealth of the current nation states. And so we're not actually asking for anything. Uh, what, what, what we are pointing out is that there's a history that affects the present that is yet to be honored. And when nations begin to work with us as partners and sovereigns and improve those processes of diplomacy, uh, then we're moving in a direction where we will be able to be as prepared as possible for climate change, including being leaders in the just energy transition. And so on the one hand, nation states have a lot of work to do. But on the other hand, it's important to note that because indigenous people are so energized to do something about climate change, if we're included and respected, we'll get to sustainability faster. If we're excluded, then what's being excluded is some of the most energetic and motivated people in the world uh, to do something about climate change. Thanks very much, Professor White. Um, Let's turn now to uh, Professor Boyd. Oh, straight to me. Okay, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks. Brilliant to uh, have the chance to follow on from you, Kyle, as well. And thank you so much for there. I think that you've sort of summarized many of the critical issues here. And um, I'll try and build on that in a, in a good way. Um, so I'm Emily Boyd. Um, I work at Luxus at Lund University, where I'm a director of this institute, where we study and research and, and educate on sustainability. So I'm coming very much at this from a sustainability perspective. Um, And I guess as a starting point, there's uh, interesting intersections with what Kyle was saying in that sustainability um, studies and science tries to really look at the interconnections between societal aspects and nature, um, very much focusing on also on trying to bring in relationships between vulnerability and resilience and um, how we, we understand this, I guess, in, from a scientific perspective, how we measure it and how, how you govern it more broadly, um, these inter- intersections. Um, when it comes to sort of my entry point into loss and damage, I started off working on adaptation and trying to understand adaptation and the effects of adaptation coming into sort of critical discussions around sort of politics of adaptation and vulnerability and the limits limits to the discourse you know started off very much around impacts of climate change and has evolved then into um, a much more um, critical understanding of um, the adaptation interventions may lead to may lead to maladaptations there's a whole sort of politics of scale there and again linking in um, to what Carl was saying about the sort of injustices the resource issues, the land issues, the historical issues, and all of those sort of societal roots of vulnerability. That's really come much more to the fore in terms of the, let's say, scientific discourse, uh, if that's where I can contribute. 
Um, so then that has evolved then more recently into this domain of loss and damage. So what do we do then when adaptation reaches its limits, whether these are biophysical limits or social limits? You know, there's various uh, perspectives on whether we should talk about limits at all, you know, whether this is a constraining factor. But um, if, we, if we think then in terms of um, the failures to mitigate, which we clearly see, and the failures to think about adaptation in more holistic ways or provide the space opportunity or platform for adaptation to evolve in ways other than quite technocratic. Um, so we're sort of failing on those is leading in a sense to loss and damage. So we're getting now um, effects that we um, that potentially irreversible, as you say, Rebecca, um, but also disentangling what those are from the um, historical context and the um, exacerbating effects of existing vulnerabilities is quite complex. Nevertheless, this loss and damage um, has appeared, um, become part of the whole negotiation discourse and the Warsaw International Mechanism and so on with work plans and ambitions. And I guess, again, some fairly narrow ways of defining it, you know, so it's about averting and minimizing and addressing adverse impacts of climate change again. And there are sort of certain focus areas that are okay to engage with around migration and so on, sort of tech, sort of transfer of technologies and so on again. So I think there is again emerging a parallel um, is this sort of small LD we talk about, which is the loss and damage in terms of the, the, the science of loss and damage. So that again is is maybe in contrast or a reaction again to the, the kind of uh, dominant framing of loss and damage. So there's some of us going down that route and there's a whole bunch of people that are working on this um, really interesting work. Erin um, uh, um, Roberts, Salim Hook, as you said, um, other people like Petra Shackhart and so on have, have all contributed and we're building also on this work to look at the disproportionate effects of climate change and what this means in terms of small l, small d. Um, what are the kind of non-economic losses and damages that we might see? So mapping those out to really try and understand and document the extent of those. And that's something that has to be done in a sort of co-produced way, uh, I think. Um, and I, But I think it's really important that we can learn lessons from other areas where things have been documented in a, in a positive way to be able to to um, create a meaning, but also uh, a long-lived memory of what it is we are losing here potentially. And again, just back to Carl's point, there is not to say we're starting from point zero here and documenting things that have been lost, because obviously there are histories here of losses. And then there are processes that are going to merge here going forward, which maybe links into your question, Rebecca, about what comes up, what's going to happen, what's important is um, there, there are all sorts of processes already ongoing, processes of reconciliation, processes of building solidarity, a, a huge amount of mobilizing, which is really coming to the fore at this COP now in, in really new ways. And I think all of that together with the kind of really trying to understand what these losses look like, what they might look like into the future, what, what intergenerational injustices we're creating here, and how we're going to work with this, both on a political level, how we're going to finance this, 
and how we're going to ensure that the right people are at the table are the really critical issues here. And I still think we've got a long way to go when it comes the, to the negotiations and the form and the mandate of our international organizations, um, the way they work. And, and the I guess still we have, we're negotiating around economics, basically. Um, we're negotiating around international relations and so on. And we're still um, trying to get these topics really at the core uh, and to be taken seriously, I guess, to some extent. So this might actually come up through national processes and uh, things that are happening and bubbling up from the bottom up. Um, in Sweden, I can give an example is that, um, you know, we, we see losses and damages both in terms of um, one example is the heat wave in 2018, the losses to farming communities and so on, and the associated effects on um, health, um, mental health, um, uh, impacts on families and so on. The forest fires of the north of Sweden exacerbating um, existing challenges for indigenous communities, the Sami communities, um, both to their ecological systems, their reindeer herding systems, but also intersecting with land rights issues that are going on in a really big way. Um, so I guess in every place, something is happening now relating to this. Um, and every and every place is some discussion about disproportionality in some way and intersectionality. Um, so like I said, this might all come from the bottom up, pushing our um, international institutions in a direction to be to have to take this seriously um and i guess um finally then we, we have to understand more about um the measurement what the measurement means how do we measure these losses and damages in a, in a good way um so we don't go down routes of um just measuring in very very narrow ways perhaps we can think about how we measure capabilities as a way to think about this and then also the governing is the final like how do we create the right institutions at the right scales um, to, uh, to avoid loss and damage ultimately. Okay, so I'll leave it at that for now and come back in the Q&A, thanks. Thanks very much, Professor Boyd. Um, and let's turn now to Professor Jigete. Uh, many, many thanks, many thanks Rebecca for giving me the opportunity to participate in this event that I consider very useful, timely, couldn't have happened at a more auspicious time when we are having COPA 26. Yeah, I, I, I want to understand your question to be, I should limit myself to what I'm doing presently, or I should take the three questions as a whole at once? It's entirely up to you. Uh, okay, yeah. So yeah, because I have some slides to 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 share, so I'm thinking maybe if I'm allowed to do so, I can. Should I go ahead? Please. Uh, many things. Um, yeah. Um, if you uh, go to the slideshow, 
Yeah, but uh, he's just covering. He's covering it up. <laughs> well, we can still we can see them. That's great. Yeah, that's the problem I'm having. Covering the many hope. Now, I, I, uh, my name again is Ademola Jigede. I'm a professor of law at the University of Venda in South Africa. I think that has been said by, uh, by Rebecca. University of Venda, for the purpose of those who don't know South Africa very well, I want to say it's, uh, it's in the Limpopo province to the north of South Africa. Is a university that is strategically you know, located there, one of historically disadvantaged universities, which is just only recently you know, pulling its weight out post, in post-appetite in South Africa. I've been, uh, I teach there international right law, and of course, I also teach uh, environmental law. Um, I have some of my students you know, in attendance uh, in this course. I can see some of them already here, and I think they will benefit tremendously from the from the discussion. Now, I I want to say that uh, you know by my my interaction with loss and damages issue actually you know date back to I think 2010 when I was doing my PhD at the University of Pretoria where I uh, examined uh, the interface of climate change regulatory framework with uh, rights of uh, indigenous peoples, particularly in the context of land. Uh, that incident took me to several locations where indigenous people were in South Africa, uh, notably in the in the uh, in the Northern Cape. So, and I have since that time maintained that relationship with them. And oftentimes, occasionally, I do go there to sort of you know see how we can sort of empower these people, particularly in enriching their voices in uh, participating in events and policy uh, development that you know, affects them the, the most. So I have been working on that and I, I, I've, been, I've been interacting basically on that. So my area of uh, research, like uh, Jessica, Rebecca Riley mentioned, is on the interface of climate change and biodiversity loss with the right of you know, these are vulnerable populations. Vulnerable populations are not limited to indigenous people in my in the context of my research. I've looked at you know different sort of you know vulnerable populations within that context of uh, you know, interface of climate change with uh, their rights. And I have the, I one of the things I also uh, discovered in the course of my uh, of my of my research, which is basically what I do is that uh, loss and damages are uh, lived experience of uh, vulnerable population, particularly in the context of Africa, a continent that is uh, disproportionately, you know, uh, as disproportionately or is disproportionately contributing to climate change. And of course, also having to bear its brunt due to limited adaptive you know, capacity as well as, you know, other huge economy factors, which are just, just as real. So, uh, and I see this, uh, you know, is a daily lived experience of, you know, uh, this vulnerable population. They, it tells on their, uh, it tells on their environment, it tells on nature, it tells, it, it affects indigenous people and local population because their livelihood uh, you know, largely and mostly depend on, you know, uh, these natural resources. For, for survival. And you know, the, uh, the trajectory or shall I say the trend in relation to what uh, 
how loss and damages tell on uh, these vulnerable populations are well evident in the number of researches that I've done, some of which I, I can I can share with us, you know. I can share some of them with us, you know, it has made me to in one of the papers I have argued demonstrating how indigenous people's land rights are implicated by climate change and how human rights approach should can be used to uh, you know to address it because I discovered that one of the things that is uh, often missing or shall I say one of the deficits that we have in the discourse is the deficit of in, of rights language which has you and I know only was able to successfully find find its entrance to a Paris agreement after a long and tedious journey of negotiation and uh, negotiations and, and of course involvement of uh, non-state actors to ensure that you know that uh, preambular provision in Paris agreement is, is entrenched. So that, that deficit is so key and particularly in the context of Africa where it is not just seen as a human rights issue. It's not just seen as a human 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 wrong issue. And I have argued that I've argued in uh, in climate change regulatory framework, for instance, which is a book that was published in 2016, that this right approach is so key, particularly at the regional level, not only to conceptualize you know, these issues, but to sort of you know also respond, respond to the issues. And of course, I've also in that context, you know, argued elsewhere looking at the system within the United Nations to argue the need for a right to a safe climate, which I think you know there is a gravitation towards it. Although there is no, it's not, it's not, it, it doesn't exist in the concrete times, but I, I, I've made an argument that there is an overwhelming gravi gravitation towards that trend and, and that you know getting to that level, crystallizing safe climate as a right or concretizing safe climate as a right will go a long way to ensure that some of these issues, inclusive of renewables and damages, are well you know, uh, addressed, as seen from the perspectives that there are issues underlying this causation. And these issues must be, must, uh, must be addressed. And of course, I've also looked at various interventions that can uh, help uh, at the national level to, to unpack it. And you know, in some of my writings, I've looked at uh, how issue, how the concept of insurance can be used to kind of uh, serve as adaptation measures to uh, loss and damages issues. And I've also looked at how um, how social security law, for instance, can be conceptualized and you know, concretized to respond to uh, issues of uh, loss and damages you know, suffered by indigenous people at the national level. I, I've looked at all those uh, as, part of my, as part of my writing. Then I have also looked at how you know, those issues can actually occasion uh, loss of sacred sites, loss of, you know, uh, loss of, uh, Loss of means of livelihood, and you know, which we you know, at times we do at which do at times push these vulnerable populations to to displacement, involuntary displacement. So the, all these are the issues I've looked at within the limit of my research, 
and I, I find them very useful because they are also uh, subjects in which we continue to engage with uh, with uh, actors at various levels. I participated at the UN discussion uh, in relation to uh, climate change and human rights. I've made this submission there too, as uh, as far as Africa is concerned. I was also part of a, a negotiating theme in Africa, the post, uh, the post, uh, is it post 2020 biodiversity framework, which uh, is still being discussed. And I've kind of you know, drawn the attention to this you know, intricate interface of climate change, biodiversity with you know, existing losses and irretrievable losses and damages being suffered by you know, vulnerable populations in Africa. I don't know if I can uh, stop there, you know, to respond to other questions, or I should just go ahead and make all the presentation. Um, why don't we pause there um, and and have a bit of a conversation between the four of us, um, and 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 see kind of what else comes out of the conversation. Yeah, that's good. That's Great. Good. Thanks very much. Um, you know, if I could just kind of highlight some themes that seem to be cutting across a lot of the remarks that we've had thus far this evening. You know, I think one of them is that um, we need to be thinking about loss and damage in a kind of broader historical and, and geographic context that I think it can be very tempting to talk about climate change, loss and damage as though there's this thing, climate change, that just hits us and causes all these losses and damages and, and really kind of thinking about the exceptional character of those losses and damages. But in fact, when we're talking about climate change, loss and damage, we're talking about certain kind of historical continuities and kind of longer legacies of colonialism, of extraction, of dispossession um, that constitute vulnerability in ways that, that are relevant, uh, you know, to a conversation about loss and damage. Um, and, you know, another theme that came out in all three of your remarks had to do with land, um, you know, really having to do with the kinds of connections that, that people have to the land and uh, the, the kind of different, differing levels of um, power that they have to kind of determine how that, that land is used. Um, and so these are things that I, I kind of want to come back to with questions. Um, but the first question I want to pose to the three of you is, you know, given that this is an event sponsored by the Phelan U.S. Center, um, let's talk about the U.S. first, because I think with loss and damage, we can think about the U.S. in kind of two, two big ways. One is that the U.S. is itself a nation state that is facing loss and damage um, and in, you know, in, in its vulnerability to natural hazards of all kinds. Um, but as, as your remarks have also pointed out, um, particularly uh, Professor White's remarks, the U.S. is also a kind of historical, an important historical agent in constituting vulnerability in, in, in you know, as the kind of largest historical emitter of greenhouse gases, you know, as, as a, a played a, a big part in climate change and the kinds of losses and damages that we're seeing. And so how do we think about the U.S. as both, um, you know, the kind of subject of, of loss and damage, but also as a, a global actor with potentially really important roles to play in, in determining how we respond to loss and damage? Um, and uh, if it's all right, um, 
Professor White, can we start with you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one way I'd like to address that question uh, has to do with how, you know, especially privileged people or political leaders within the U.S. understand themselves as being in the position to respond to loss and damage. And I think within the U.S. you get uh, some different types of memory <laughs> that um, that are that that are operative, you know. So, for example, the the United States, uh, like you were saying, Professor Elliot, um, has caused anthropogenic climate change both against its own people, uh, but also has exported that type of violence all over the world, um, and. So the United States, um, uh, people in the position of authority to be able to do things about climate change, when they oftentimes think about loss and damage, they only think about the loss and damage that's tangible to them. Um, so for example, uh, tangible in relation to effects their own families and children might face in the future, or if it's somebody in a policy position, they might think of something like, say, Hurricane Katrina or the recent flood issues that affected uh, Black communities in Detroit uh, more heavily than other communities. They only think of it in terms of the economic cost um, or the, 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 the issues tied to infrastructure and housing. And so in this way, uh, in the context of the U.S., there is a very short memory about what a lot of losses and damages are. And oftentimes people are promoting solutions uh, that are barely even things that can be considered as band-aids. Um, now, one thing I'll mention quickly though, is that one of the major climate change policies in the United States that's adopted by the Biden-Harris administration is actually an attempt to completely change this thinking. Uh, it's called the Justice 40 Initiative, and it's from Executive Order 14008. And what it says is that when the U.S. engages in billions of dollars of infrastructure investments in areas like climate resilience infrastructure, energy infrastructure, water sanitation, clean water infrastructure, workforce development for climate change friendly industries and renewable energy, 40% of the benefits of those investments must flow to disadvantaged communities, Black communities, Brown communities, Indigenous communities, low-income communities. Now, here the question is, what are the benefits? <laughs> is 40% a floor or a ceiling? Uh, and what are the different types of benefits? And so many environmental justice leaders have argued that benefits means things like community ownership of infrastructure, community-owned financial instruments that will be able to further empower the federal investments toward community development, and numerous other aspects. In a sense, making up for the last 200 years of infrastructure disinvestment and financial disinvestment in Black, Brown, Indigenous, and low-income communities. And so the Justice 40 Initiative has a lot of promise in terms of its ethos, but to actually implement it, the federal agencies aren't ready for it. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot happening right now to try to figure out how the agencies could reorient 
re-engineer themselves, rethink what they're doing, but we don't have a lot of time to do so because we're already facing the threat of another potential or congressional administration coming in that will be racist and against mitigation and adaptation to climate change. And so we're really trying to show that the Justice 40 initiative will make a difference in people's lives. Thanks very much. Um, uh, Professor Boyd. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, yeah, fascinating to hear all of this um, from Kyle. And I'm, um, I guess I have more questions as well um, myself, but I guess, uh, I guess it's really fascinating to see so much change happening so fast. Um, I think that um, there's an awful lot of bottom-up action that's coming within the United States, but I guess that's been sort of bottling up for some time. Uh, and also there's like a wind of opportunity, as you were saying, Carl, right now with the administration in place. Um, and like you said, also that could change quite fast again. Um, but it's really interesting to to hear more that sort of notions of loss and damage as such are being discussed within the US and that it has shifted perhaps. And I'd like to hear more on that from um, the way it was sort of originally framed, I guess, global north, global south, but that there's somehow um, a shift in the discourse here generally that there are disproportionate effects from the impacts of climate change everywhere. Um, and that as a result of that, um, people in places are, you know, discussing and debating the effects of climate change and those most vulnerable everywhere are affected. And that, that is a shift, I think, that has happened since the last IPCC, for sure. Um, and, and about time, I would say also. But I guess um, it's revealing that um, wealthier nations or more affluent places in the world are also struggling with these um, effects of climate change and also struggling with the contentious politics around it. And that, I guess, the questions around that for me then are like, where, what, is, what are the opportunities that that opens up generally? And where also more generally, like, where is that heading then? Um, what does the kind of trajectory look like uh, in terms of actually creating um, the, the human rights um, that Ademola is talking about, the um, dignity for all and, you know, implementing some new real um, frameworks that are really getting to the roots and also supporting and delivering to, to communities in new ways. Like you're just talking about sort of federal, federal institutions having to like change quickly, but it's real and it's tangible. So, so I don't know, I guess it raises a lot of interesting thoughts for me. Um, if either of you, Kyle or, or Adam, would like to comment on that. Um, yeah, let's turn to Professor uh, Jigede, um for some response. Yeah, many thanks. Do you really want my sincere view on your question? You want me to be sincere with you? Sorry? Do you really want me to be sincere in relation to the United States? You want me to yes, I mean, please be candid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll be frank with you. 
You know, as a person who has been researching on this uh, subject for a long time now, I can say I've not been really impressed by the uh, role of the United States, you know, in terms of the leadership. It is demonstrating in this important question. And I can give you all sort of examples in relation to that. Uh, first, in relation to linking even human rights with climate change, if you've been following this story very well, United States is one of the one of the states who actually opposed that linkage, arguing that activities, you know, underlying you know climate change are the very activities that are necessary to realize rights. And of course, you know, that kind of you know has shaped his you know policy to a large extent. And that issue, I'm talking like somebody living outside the United States now, an African, you know, kind of you know. Uh, giving an objective view of the participation of the United States in the discourse, which is, uh, and I want you to get my submission in that in that wise. And of course, you know, that in itself tell a lot. The United States also oppose, you know, linking, uh, bringing, bringing human rights, you know, uh, discourse in the in the under the hedges of United United UNF. Triple C. As far as the United States is concerned, UNF Triple C it should be activities under UNF Triple C should be totally divorced, you know, from human rights. If you want to argue human rights, go to human rights treaty, treaty bodies. Don't bring that debate to UNF Triple C. United States was also part of those who took leadership in making that submission, which you know uh, stalled the progress of activism uh, or activists trying to ensure that you know. Uh, rights language are, are used in uh, all these uh, climate instruments. I'm talking specifically about uh, loss and damages. United States is also, you know, particularly under President Trump populism, you know, is so, so, so horrible then because now at the time, you know, there was even total breakdown of negotiation, total breakdown of, of involvement of the United States in the discussion. Even before that time, things were worse because you know United States was saying then that they were, I think, along with New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken, they were the one making that case against African position, saying that there should be compensation, there should be funding. The submission of United States and, and New Zealand then was that you know you cannot talk about compensation without talking about attribution. How do we determine the question of attribution? How do you determine which state, you know, is uh, responsible or liable for a particular loss and damages. So these are all the technical points being raised to kind of, you know, derail the, the discourse in relation to climate change. And, and you know, United States play a prominent role in, you know, in, this, in leading this discourse, which I consider to be anti, you know, loss and damages, you know, as intervention. So I think it's, it's important that uh, you know we we look at United States in that context before we so that we can properly you know articulate uh, the role that we expect in nations in nation as big and as you know, uh, as impactful as United States to make in climate change discussion. I'm I'm so pleased when I heard President Biden saying that you know they will continue, they will start the leadership process. We're still waiting for it. We're still waiting for it, so it's so so it's so important that we we know that. And I feel that, except uh, going back to what uh, uh, my my colleague Emily said, 
except we begin to concretize all these issues of loss and damages using the language of life, you know, we cannot adequately you know, uh, address them because if we, do, if we just see loss and damages merely as loss and damages and we don't link to rights, what we are saying, it will have a knock-down effect on how we actually tackle it. Because now it will, it, will, it will affect the process, the institution, the responses of nations. Because the way it is seen, it's not seen as a, as a right issue. But if it is articulated as a right issue and people perceive it to be as something that you know, uh, states should have obligations towards addressing, then becomes something else. So, and I feel that conceptual understanding of this issue is so important. Even as we deal with it, we cannot, you know, uh, divorce our rights from it. I, I will stop at that now. You know, yeah. Thanks very much. Um, and if I could just kind of pick up on on really sort of where you ended, um, because I think it connects to other comments that have been made already this evening about the problem of measurement. Um, you know that that it, it's a it's become a kind of technical question of how do we know loss and damage when we see it both, you know, what counts as, as loss, what counts as damage. And then also to what extent do we attribute it to climate change? Um, that's become a kind of technical uh, uh, question for social scientists who, and, and, you know, people who work in the kind of policy world, but I think your comments, um, Adamola and, and Emily's, and Kyle's really too also speak to the, the politics of this, um, that there is something at stake politically in making those determinations and the ways in which, ways in which even perhaps the kind of fetishization of measurement um, precludes a more kind of political conversation about this issue in ways that might reference things like human rights. Um, and so I'd be curious just to hear any of you kind of elaborate on that, This the the how we need to be thinking critically about techniques of measurement of definition and how that might relate to the particular, you know, solutions that then can get kind of put on the table to thinking about loss and damage. Yeah, I appreciate the, the, the question and the, the previous exchange with the, the panelists. Um, you know, one of the, reasons why the United States is able to play some of these violent games, both internally, but also uh, externally about the assignment of causality and responsibility for climate change is that very short memory uh, that people in the privileged population don't want to uh, go beyond. You know, for example, if you're looking at, say, a particular tribal nation and say that there's a potential threat to a cultural practice. Um, well, is that particular threat something that can be attributed primarily to climate change or not? That's actually not that relevant of a question because what we found in the national climate assessment, uh, but also in a number of other tribal reports on uh, climate change and tribal testimonies, is that the main reason why say a cultural practice is threatened is because for the last 150 years, the land base of that community has been shrunk. So there's only one place left <laughs> to uh, engage in that practice. And then something like coastal erosion or warming or change in forest cover or 
uh, temperature water quality poses an extreme threat to that. So the solution actually has to do with expanding back the indigenous, the tribal land base um, with the U.S. attempting to make up for generations of disinvestment and disrespect of tribal governance to shore up tribal governance. And I appreciate uh, uh, both panelists' reference of of rights, uh, rights to self-governance, rights to development, uh, rights to free prior and informed consent, rights to territory. Um, And so for this reason, right, climate change itself, if it's only looked at as something regarding a very isolated sense of causality, we're always going to get caught up in these numerical games. But instead, if we realize that some of the the solutions, um, you know, like solutions tied to rights, are ones that diverse people have been calling for for generations due to repeated violations of their rights, land dispossession, educational mistreatment, cultural assimilation, um, uh, then I think we don't need to get caught up in the various uh, numbers games. But it's always, you know, horrific to hear about the global footprint of the United States. And, you know, it's sad that a country that has treated people internal to its borders uh, has such a prominent position globally because it's repeating the same practices uh, elsewhere in the world and, and has been for some time. Um, can I can I come in there, Rebecca? And just had a thought, and I was just wondering um, if there is a way for us to be able to um, use measurement in a way that can be to an advantage or usefulness. Um, and I'm just wondering, I mean, there's there's ways to think about um, uh, communicating through something like capabilities to other actors that aren't necessarily convinced of, you know, the rights to development or the rights sitting at the core, you know, because there's so many different perspectives and there's such strong voices um, dominant voices um, in certain sectors and as we were talking about earlier the the populism or the you know that those who aren't convinced even by climate change still um so so I think a lot about is there a way to to use the measurement to in a positive way um is there a way to use a quantification to support people's rights or people's court cases is there a way to um, use this idea of attribution? Um, so take take that which the scientists are developing and use it in a way that can be constructive for processes. And maybe I'm completely naive here, but um, I'm I'm just wondering there if there there are ways to turn this around. It's just thoughts going through my head. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear from from you or what you think about that as well. Yeah, I, I think Rebecca, can I comment? I, I, I want to appreciate you know the contributions of uh, Professor White and you know, Professor, you know, uh, Emily on this on this important issue. Yeah, 
you know, when I think about this whole thing, I listening to you talking, which I'm, I'm so, I'm so touched because, you know, initially when, when this climate, climate change, you know, uh, came to surface, the issue was denial of climate change. So what we are beginning to also see now is also denial of you know loss and damages. We have, we have, we have uh, you know some sector like Hemelo saying, uh, dominant sector you know with this messaging. I don't know if it is intended or otherwise, which is meant to kind of you know uh, this, the, 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 is it like you know the, the, the distract our attention from the main issue. Now, all these issues of attribution, causations, they are, legal, they are legal issues and they could be rightly raised. But as far as I'm concerned, what happens to principles? I mean, principles that we have, you know, over the years, over the decades, have come to embrace within the context of environmental law. Principles that we have over the years embraced within the context of, you know, international human rights law. Principles such as cooperation, for instance. Principles such as you know co- common humanity of mankind. I mean, principles such as uh, principles, principles such as common heritage. You know, I mean, and I think you know there there is a need for us to go back to this basic because you know if we see this issue in that lens, I'm talking about conceptually now. If we perceive it as this, this is an issue that requires a cooperation to address, emphasis will not be so much on who cost what or what cost what, you know, uh, which nation responsible. Emphasis will be on capabilities. Capabilities, where does the capabilities lie? Emphasis will not be, okay, you are using, uh, you, are, you are saying compensation, where, where does the, where, who is responsible, who is liable? This seems to me the very thing that was happening when genocide was happening in Rwanda and the whole world was co- coordinating conferences all over the places defining what is genocide, what is not genocide, is what is happening there. Genocide is, you know, and before we, we knew what was happening, a whole generation is gone, you know, where we're still trying to define what it is. So the same thing we are seeing here within the context of you know, climate change discourse, when people talk about loss and damages, how to address it, issue of attribution, issue of compensation, liability, which get me right. I'm not saying I'm, I'm a lawyer and I know these are technical questions that we need to discuss. Mm-hmm. But how about rising? You know, Emily was talking about messaging. How about rising beyond these technical challenges to actually embrace some principles that, you know, have underlined, you know, uh, environmental law and human rights and try to kind of raise, raise the level of the debate above that to say, okay, now, how should we cooperate rather than say who is responsible? The question should be how should we cooperate as a global village to address this issue? Because we can see there is an evidence of it. We can see that there are continents that lack capability and capacity to address it. As we speak, you know, Africa is adversely affected, low highland states, you know, have been wiped away. You know, they are making projections about whether the states will be in a system 15 or 20 years time. Those are the discussions that they are having. So they are not, so how about seeing, okay, how do we cooperate to solve these issues? How do we generate funds? How do those who have the capacity and capability, the technological capability, the, uh, the, uh, the what do you call it, the way with that? How do, how do we come together to ensure that, you know, these issues that 
confront you know us as mankind? How do we ensure that it is addressed? And so I I, I think you know messaging is so critical, like uh, the previous speaker said. And when I talk about messaging, the content of the messaging is also very critical. That we place emphasis on issues that matter, on concepts that matter, rather than you know uh, getting derailed by technical issues, which you know political leaders, for instance, would like to you know stay home because actually it prevents them from taking necessary necessary actions. Because that's what I see, you know, they keep discussing. COP26, again, these issues will come up again, issue of compensation. They have established all sorts of institutions, uh, the Warsaw implementation mechanism. The, there is a, there is a, what do you call it, the, the, the Santiago one, the, the, the Fiji one, all these mechanisms are here and there. They are not being operationalized. Why? They are not being operationalized because this political will is still not there. This messaging is in order. People still see this thing as an African issue or, or a low island issue or low island state issue, not like it's an issue of that is an issue that is confronting our common interests as, as a whole and and the need and and in that context develop how to adequately address it. So that would be my submission in that regard. I will see, I can speak more, but let me stop there. Thanks very much. Um, I want to make sure we, t we leave some time for questions from you all in the audience. Unfortunately, Professor White did have to jump off um, to, to respond uh, to kind of governmental um, uh, responsibilities. Um, but just to let you know, we have people in the audience tonight from the UK, from India, South Africa, Poland, Mozambique, Turkey, Netherlands, Canada, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Singapore, Ethiopia, and China. So a truly international audience. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. So do pop your questions into the chat. Uh, the first question we have, I think actually speaks to this, this point that we sort of just landed on about really the kinds of limitations of existing governance. And this question is from Ori Moulton Ulrich, um, or Ulrich, uh, sorry, um, who asks, how do panelists see existing governments with waning legitimacy and dependence upon moneyed special interests on top of party polarization leading to them versus us being able to change the status quo or business as usual? Are the panelists aware of the Global Citizens Assembly taking place in conjunction with COP26? If so, could such deliberative processes, critically at the national level as they hold power to alter laws and policies and fund different things, be a pathway supporting governments to make real change with fairness and justice at its core? If not, are there alternative democratic improvements that you might suggest? So big question, a tough question, um, but a great question. Do you want to go first, Adnola, or should I go? You can go, Emily. You can go. Yeah. Um, okay. So, really good questions and big questions. Um, yeah, I'm aware of the citizen assemblies and obviously also the emergence of citizen assemblies uh, quite broadly. Um, I, I guess what I would say is that. Um, yeah, in principle, I think um, these are necessary and they are merging for reasons. Um, 
because they're needed. Um, the effectiveness of them I, is something that we'll have to study and evaluate and understand in a broader context of governance. Um, I, I think your questions are really good because they're big questions. Um, I think they're also questions that we don't necessarily have all the answers to. You know, what is the best form of governance or the most democratic form of governance? Certainly, um, uh, democracy and engagement is really critical to solving climate change. That goes, that's without a doubt. And um, um, the pushback on uh, populism and the emergence of, uh, as we talked about a bit about earlier, the, the sort of the deniers of climate change still uh, and, and other forces are very real. Um, also linked to misinformation and, and other things that are really going on and other governance questions that maybe are outside of our remit, but that are equally as important, you know, um, emergence of new technologies, digitalization, misinformation, and all of that, which is hugely important. Um, so I think that um, I would, yeah, I would look and study the citizen assemblies as a form of sort of democratic governance, localized governance. Um, I would also say that um, we also need to be critical even of new forms of decentralized or localized governance, to what extent they are also co-opted or to what extent they have limitations in terms of delivering um, and not to put all our eggs in one basket again. That's really important here. Um, so have sort of plural approaches. Um, I'll leave it at that. And Adamal, I'll hand over to you. So you're nodding a bit there, so maybe that's a good point for you to come in. Uh, many thanks, Emily. Um, thanks for the. That's it. Like you said, it's a very, it's a very interesting question, and it's, it's also very topical because, particularly when we look at you know how the climate change regulatory framework is framed internationally, you know, it's state based. You know, decisions are taken at the state level. You know, state non-state actors only are restricted to sideshow talks like these and. You know, the uh, I mean lobbying outside the structure, and so for me it is it is so pleasing that we begin to see such a forum, which I think you know extends you know uh, democracy in terms of you know uh, 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 climate governance. For me, it's part of this uh, what we call environmental deliberative you know uh, democracy, which allows I mean those who are affected by the issues to also have a say and have a have a good say for that matter in what in, in what affects them. So, but, but uh, like Emily said, we, it's also something that we need to kind of you know continue to critically reflect on to ensure that the process is also not hijacked, you know, to uh, to to achieve you know certain certain specific purposes which are actually anti anti poor anti you know vulnerable. Populations, because at times when you look at these groups, it's welcoming to see all over the world. For instance, what is going on? Why you know youth rising up? You know children taking matters to the uh, to uh, children right committee to, to to make a case. You know things happening in the United States. You know we still remember the Juliana case, uh, but you know all these issues are so 
we re- also the Uganda case and all these are the Irish case that is going that that I ended not so long ago. So all these matters are very are part of this uh, environmental, you know, deliberation, environmental, you know, uh, deliberacy that is going on that, and I think is is pro pro you know uh, solution to climate change. But we need to continue to critically reflect on them and to critically ensure that the process is not uh, hijacked. And we also need to ensure that we we we, we that this this action is not only loud at the international level, that it is even louder at the at the at the national level where it matters most. Because oftentimes, when we, like COP now, a lot of activities are taking place. There's show and these that forum, that assembly going on, which is which is good. But we 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 should encourage such things to also happen at the local level, at the national level, where it matters. For instance, when you look at uh, when you look at uh, climate litigation, for instance, in in this part of in this part of the world, it's so few. It's so few. Why? Because of the way people see it. People, people don't even agree on what constitutes climate you know, litigation, how human rights can come to play. And yet you look at international level, you see this activism, activism there, you know, taking place here and there. Then you wonder, okay, now how do we ensure that this is you know, uh, domesticated, which I also think is part of the solution we should continue to reflect on because it is at the local and the national level where this thing matters most to those who are, you know, who are suffering under you know, this uh, loss and damage, so to speak. So thank you. Thanks very much. Um, as other questions are coming in, I also wanted to ask about, um, you know, I think one way we, we talk about climate change loss and damage is that climate change is a source itself of loss and damage that, that we're worried about. But there, there's another maybe kind of frontier in which we might be looking at loss and damage, which is the loss and damages attendant on the things that we do in the name of climate change. Um, so, and, and perhaps this kind of connects to some of the work, um, Emily, that you've done on maladaptation. Um, uh, but this is uh, you know, a quote from The Guardian today about how kind of mitigation um, and, and the strategies on the table for avoiding worsening effects of climate change could drive losses. Um, so in this Guardian article, we have net zero targets, the central theme of COP26, revolve around incentivizing carbon capture markets through mass reforestation, biofuels, and new technologies, <clears throat> which many indigenous leaders see as <clears throat> false climate solutions that will lead to further land grabs and environmental and cultural destruction. For them, keeping fossil fuels and minerals in the ground is the only way to curtail global heating and its devastating impacts. And so I'd be curious to hear from you just, you know, how we might be thinking or how how we should perhaps think or or the things that we should be paying attention to um, as they relate to loss and damage when it's it's not just a matter of kind of when the next hurricane is going to raise a city or or when the next drought is going to wipe out a, a harvest. Um, it's also, you know, the things that we're doing to try to facilitate an energy transition or, um, or you know, change our built environments or whatever that might be that could exacerbate some of the kinds of vulnerabilities to loss and damage that we've been talking about this evening. 
Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. Actually, we we um, we've been thinking about that. It looks as um, uh, my colleague and I and, and some of our PhD students are working together on that right now, looking at the relationship between um, negative emissions um, and loss and damage. Because exactly that, that if we um, create actions that are going to delay um, tackling climate change, then that naturally might lead to in increasing vulnerabilities and further loss and damage down the line. So I guess that's where we need to be critically aware and looking at the solutions that are coming through under mitigation. It's not enough just to say, oh, we're mitigating now, so it's all okay. But what are those solutions actually? So that whole stream of critical perspectives on geoengineering and negative emissions and so on needs to be then linked to us working on loss and damage and vulnerability. And then linking back also to adaptation, those examples of maladaptation, so investing in infrastructures that are supposed to help people to adapt, but actually have sort of downstream effects, negative consequences. Um, also um, creates further loss and damage. So, so these things are obviously interconnected. Uh, and, and I guess we're starting to make those connections in terms of the research community. Obviously, the journalists, they're ahead of the game when it comes to thinking about where things might connect. So that's also a good source of information uh, and thinking about it. And so we're sort of mapping out each within our areas and then finding points at which those can connect and I guess they're going to come through with perspectives to start with and then I guess after that they'll be theorizing and, and, and empirical work actually to follow on from that. Uh, many thanks Emily, uh, it's so fascinating what you're doing and uh, you know it's also very real even within the context of you know African continent. You know, in one of my, in some of my researches, which I have done, particularly in that book on climate change regulatory framework and indigenous land rights, and of course in other works too, I've actually demonstrated how projects such as, you know, Red Plus, which has been implemented, you know, I mean, a lot of African states, I think close to 30 are involved in the implementation of that project, and how technically you know, such projects have been channel through which indigenous people's rights are actually denied. They are not properly compensated because you know, they don't have the tradition, the conventional tenor system, which uh, often you know, underline you know, contract, for instance. You know, their, their sense of ownership of land is so fluid and it's traditional. And it, since you don't, if you can get a document, a paper document showing you own uh, you own the land, then it becomes very difficult for you to even enter into that negotiation or that contracting a, a space, you know, between the state and you know donor agencies. So uh, you you already can see that technically from the conceptualization and to the implementation of the project. They've been tactically, you know, exempted from the from the scenario. So I, I can I can relate to the reality of such vulnerable populations when when they say that it is affecting them because you know it is not actually this program which uh, are conventionally are meant to address climate change uh, are not doing so. They are actually reinforcing the pattern of you know, discrimination. The pattern of you know uh, of of impoverishment 
of you know of indigenous people which uh, they've always you know cry against for instance you know in most part of africa what they, what they do with red plus is just this command and con- colonial command and control issue just put a fence around the forest and you know send uh, send people who are traditionally living on it or who have traditionally and and if i may say harmoniously lived in that context chase them out so at the end of the day, the eco services that they rent, so some of them, that that forest is an asset, is, is an access to, to their spirituality, is an access to their, uh, to their means of livelihood, you know, just by one policy in the name of implementing you know, projects such as RED, they are exempted out of it and you know, they, they can't access it again. So that, that is exactly what we, what they are, what, uh, we're talking about uh, why it is so important that we also conceptualize that in form of laws and damage because these are laws of uh, sacred sites. If you cannot access sacred, your sacred sites, is is in a way you know laws and damage because that's a non-economic one. So uh, we, which is also real, you know, it, it's so real. So uh, I think these are important issues that we also need to include as part of the discussion because. They are real issues that technology, you're talking about geoengineering for me- me- mechanism, for instance, all those uh, carbon capture, biofuel bio, bio plantations, here and there, Jatropa plantations all over Africa. You know, it's encouraging land grabbing. That's just reality in Ethiopia. And, and it also raises further questions, particularly when you consider that this is a continent where food security is even you know uh, is even you know uh, compromised. Then the whole idea of you know uh, planting just for people to use uh, biofuel in their cars and all, then it also raises other moral questions about how ethical such is within the context of you know uh, continents such as Africa, where food security is a big challenge. Where people who feel it much don't even have a bicycle, let alone have a car to be for, to be for, and yet it is their land that is being used to make all this plantation. So this is key, and and those, these are issues that I think should always be part of part of the discussion to ensure that these measures taken to address climate change do not also, you know. Uh, adversely impact the right of a vulnerable vulnerable population. Thanks very much. Um, We have a question that's just come in um, that perhaps speaks to a very kind of specific uh, site where where precisely some of these issues might become lively. And and Adamola, I might turn to you first on this one. Um, Ionius Nlovu asks, what are your opinions on the climate deal concluded between South Africa the U.S., Canada, and other countries in terms um, of which funding will be provided to South Africa to invest in other energy sources and technologies and phase out its reliance on coal? Uh, thanks so much for that question. Uh, Professor Lowe is a very lively question because it's a question that is also very relevant within the context of Africa. You know, it, it can be good, it can be bad. You know that that uh, arrangement entered into by South Af- between South Africa and uh, these uh, these countries. First, because we do talk about the principle of common but differentiated responsibility under international environmental law, and common but differentiated responsibility suggests that states who have the capacity to help 
another state should be willing, uh, which I think is, is a welcome development because it's, it's going to be positive towards you know, addressing, admitting the target set in Paris Agreement. At least it's going to contribute to it to ensure that fossil fuel is a uh, fossil fuel combustion is stopped, not only in South Africa, in other states of you know, Africa, states like Nigeria, states like you know, where all gas flaring is just, it's, it's a daily, daily experience of people in the Niger Delta area who cannot even you know, fish you know, in an environment where they have traditionally lived. So, so we cannot be glorifying fossil fuel combustion. We can't, we can't, we can't, we should welcome all the activities, you know, that, all the assistance that we can get to ensure that such is, such is addressed. And I want to see that contribution, being, that agreement being made in that context. Of course, it, 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 it's a loan, one can say it's a loan, it's the money being loaned, but then I, I don't think it operates under the conventional loan regime of high interest. So I, I see that as a positive. But then it's also it can also be it can also be negative, negative in the sense that uh, we we can say okay, okay what then happens to uh, to all the coal infrastructures that are already in the systems, people working. Professor Wild was talking about just transition the other time. So what happened to that transition? How do we ensure that those who are working in the in those uh, in those sectors being phased out now? How do we ensure that they are accommodated? How do we ensure that their rights are protected? Talking about human rights again. So, and I think these are some of the areas where we need to also you know, share the light of debate to ensure that even, even, even as well intended as that thing is to ensure that uh, you know, all these other issues are also factored in, in, the, in the implementation of the project. Otherwise, I see. I think I see it as a as a as a, good, as a positive development for the global climate system itself. Because South Africa, as indeed with other nations, must ensure that they take steps to end, you know, uh, to close their fossil fuel sectors, to ensure that you know uh, uh, alternative energy source is developed, which I think is the direction that Europe is is going. Which I think is a beautiful one for the climate system. Because we can't we can't continue to be emitting carbon and be talking climate change. You know, those are the things that are also on the line, you know, loss and damage. And these are the arguments that people are making when they talk about attribution, causation, for instance. Africa itself is also causing it, you know. I mean, in terms of future climate system, when we continue along that that line of that uh, we continue along that historical path that we are condemning the north. Of following generation past, so we if we if you continue in that path again, it's like we are furthering, we're furthering the the the, the circle, and we're not going to get out of it. So I think in that wise, how we say is a good development. Thanks very much. Um, we have just a few minutes left, and and I want to kind of pose a final question, which is, you know, on the on the mitigation side, I think. Um, there's a, there's a broadly shared sense that what would make COP26 successful is if we can get commitments that keep us to 1.5 degrees of warming. That would kind of mark a successful COP. Um, on the question of loss and damage, what, in your view, would a successful COP accomplish? Are there kind of specific um, 
outcomes, things that we, you know, not, may, may not necessarily expect, you know, if we're not terribly optimistic, but things that we would want that would signal kind of meaningful progress on issues of loss and damage at the COP this year. Um, maybe I could just say a couple of things. I guess uh, real a real strong commitment to one and a half degrees and uh, NDCs, um, perhaps including loss and damage in policies and plans. So some kind of guidelines or at least setting out um, what those kind of guidelines might look like and who should be addressing them. Putting loss and damage, I think it's been suggested by some, some groups um, to have a sort of permanent uh, agenda item uh, and um, at Substand, I think that um, that might be something that could advance uh, the topics. So, and then I guess advancing the um, Santiago, Santiago network, um, operationalizing that and making that something real. Um, so I guess these, and the financing aspects, which is really tough one and a difficult one. There's a new report out by Stockholm Environment Institute, colleagues there on uh, financing for loss and damage, um, which um, they did a good job of sort of summarizing the challenges around making financing a reality for L&D and the challenges of compensation and so on, as you're all aware of. But um, I guess just getting some a few things more firmly sort of set in the agenda and discussed and agreed on or for a plan, even if it's a plan to be developed, um, that also signals to all of us working on this area that it's uh, of relevance and importance. We will continue to work on it nevertheless because it's linked to so many aspects of vulnerability and development and adaptation and so on anyway. Um, but just that signal is very useful in paving the way for important research, important uh, collaborations internationally, and important work, you know, building connections, collaboration, for example, uh, as uh, Adamala said, between, for example, legal experts and law and um, social vulnerability, resilient scholars, sustainability scholars, and so on, to also sort of push that agenda forward, I think. Um, yeah, so those are just a few of my thoughts. Thanks. Thank you, Emily. I think you have covered you have covered the space so so well. I just have I have little to 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 add. I, I just want to say in a nutshell that the the system that is in place already, the system on that you've mentioned some of them that the Warsaw implementation mechanism and the Fiji network, uh, Santiago, they should operationalize this system. I mean, we, we, I mean it should, this system should not just be tiger on paper. You know, they should take concrete steps, actionable steps to, that can be measured in terms of, okay, how are states, you know, are complying with what, uh, what are these uh, mechanisms you know require? Because those those mechanisms look so fascinating on paper, but then when it comes to implementation, it's like we, we always discuss it at the next COP, next COP, next COP. You know, nothing in between. So, and I don't think 
it's like kind of keep uh, gloving these issues. So I feel we, the issue of implementation should be very uh, fundamental at COP discussion. Then when we look at the instruments of, uh, pillar instruments of climate change, particularly the UNFCCC and Paris Agreement, they talk about uh, regional steps, national steps. I, 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 don't, I see that as often you know, quiet at that level of you know, discussion. Everything is just international, UN, UN, UN. There's a need to also you know, begin to see how do we take regional steps. AU, for instance, how does AU take regional steps to ensure that issues pertaining to that continent, specifically the continent, are addressed? How do other regional blocks, how do they take measures? I think this should also be part of the submission at that level. We see people lobbying, AU lobbying, you know, G77, everybody just lobbying for its own interest. But the question is, what do they do? What should be happening even at the regional and national level? And I think it is important that we bring, we kind of you know, raise this discussion to accommodate all these uh, layers of governance to make uh, this issue of loss and damages more, 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 uh, more susceptible to, to being addressed at all layers. So I think that is so, it's so key that we include that, that uh, we, we ensure that you know, these, uh, these, uh, these uh, discussion at that level captures all these uh, levels, all these layers of governance of you know, climate change within the context of you know, loss and damage. Because whether we like it or not, we can talk about compensation, funding and all that, where does the money come from? But everything is still boils down to steps taken at the national level to ensure that these issues are, are addressed. And there should be a discussion around that too, even at COP level, there should be a discussion at that level. The focus should not just be on United States, uh, all, I mean, it should be a collective awareness that there is a need to take concrete steps at different layer of governance of climate change to address issues of loss and damages. Thanks very much. That brings us to 7.30. It's been a terrific pleasure, such a privilege to have the opportunity to talk with and learn from our panelists this evening. Uh, thank you so much for taking part to everyone from all over the world who joined and submitted your questions. We're really grateful to you for finding the time to be with us today. And we've got a lot here to be thinking about um, as we watch the COP unfold over the next 10 days or so, and certainly far beyond that. So thanks very much um, and hope to see you at, at future LSE events. Uh, thanks so much for the opportunity. Yeah, I hope it, this will lead to more collaboration. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you so much from me as well. It was a great evening and a great discussion. Uh, thanks, Rebecca, for uh, your chairing as well. And uh, very nice to meet colleagues and look forward to talking more. So mm. thank you. Certainly, thanks. Good evening. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for the opportunity. Looking forward to further, you know, discussing with you yes for sure i will send you an e i'll send you an email i already have a, something to talk to you about <laughs> thanks i look forward to it thank you take care everyone Good night. Uh, bye. thank you for listening 
you can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.